Welcome to the Theology Research News podcast. Theology Research News provides updates from K. Leuven's Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies to a worldwide academic audience. It features interviews with faculty members, discussions with visiting scholars, and updates about our publications, conferences, and other events. Please visit TRN at theologyresearchnews.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Today we feature a lecture by Dr. Maricel Ibita from the Ateneo de Manila in the Philippines. The title of her talk is Evil Mouths, Praising Mouths, Imagery of the Mouth in Psalm 109 and the Future of Biblical Studies. In the Philippines, um, we have a saying, ang hindi marunong lumingon sa pinanggalingan, hindi makakarating sa paroroonan. Meaning to say, if you do not know how to look back, you cannot actually arrive or um, achieve your destination or future. And so let's start by looking back at our beginnings. Mouth is speaking different English accents, the silver beginnings. Can you please look at your um, seatmate? See, that's the different accents. Um, one of the heartwarming features of the Golden Jubilee celebration of the English program is browsing our website for stories of the beginnings. New Testament scholar Raymond Collins recalls the earlier days of the faculty and the many ways English was spoken. He said, Diversity and enthusiastic excitement were the realities that struck me as I entered the aula mania of the Pope's College. Instead of a relatively small gathering of black robe clerics, I was faced with a large audience of men and women whose ages spanned a broad range of years. There were some seminarians and student priests from the American College but the group included people from a great number of different countries. The different accents of their spoken English, sometimes a second or third language for them, rival the different accents of their professors. Their theological and cultural interests were widely different from those who sat beside them, engaging them in conversations that broadened their vistas. What brought them together was a respect for a hollow theological tradition and enthusiasm for the Second Vatican Council and a desire to be part of this new venture in Old Leuven. And I was to be a privileged part of it. Our own Septuagint expert, Johann Luz, for his part, admitted the difficulty of professors to adjust. He said, as was the case with several other colleagues from the early days, I was only acquainted with English in its written form. The first lessons I taught in English were completely written out and proofread by an English lady. She was an official inspector of Oxford English abroad. The preparation of each lesson was very time-consuming, and the result was far from perfect. Especially during the Q&A, when I thought I formulated everything perfectly, the students seemed to have difficulties to understand me. And the opposite was also true. The questions put by the students were very clear to them, but a mystery to me. <laughs> I'm still amazed by the courage which led us to teach in an unfamiliar language, which to the native speakers must have been must have borne only a slight resemblance to English. Every beginning is hard. So for me, these anecdotes are like our own primeval stories. They are what Margaret Garrett Silk calls as the other side of chaos, creation, the new beginnings of Kai Leuven in 1968. We have to remember that at that time, the world was recovering from two world wars. We were just finished with Vatican II. And locally, 
The escalation of the Dutch-French linguistic tensions in the early 60s was resolved in 1968 by dividing the university and therefore our faculty. Um, Peter de Sommer became Caio Leuven's here, um, the Dutch-speaking uh, part of the university, became its first rector, serving until his death in 1985. At the Flemish faculty at Godgeleerd Head, New Testament scholars took the helm with Franz Neering as the first dean and Moritz Sabe as academic secretary. So, for the current students, Moritz Sabe is not just the name of our library. He is a real person. He was our dedicated librarian during the birth pangs of our faculty who made sure that we have enough books for our research. So by 1969, we have a complete international theology program in English. In the course of four more um, in the course of time, there were four more biblical scholars who would lead the way for the faculty. Christian Brechelmans, Jan Lambrecht, Joel Delobel, and Mark Berbene, who also became rector of the Kali Leuven. Each of them contributed to biblical studies in Belgium, the low countries, and the world through their different disciplines and by acting in their various capacities. I will recall the contributions of these former deans, followed by two equally renowned scholars, a representative of the Old and New Testaments, and meanwhile, you can look around this room. They are our deans, and you can feel the presence of these great men. So we start. Franz Neyrick. Influence to the field of biblical studies is concentrated mainly on the New Testament, especially historical critical method, the two-source theory of the Synoptic Gospels, and the so-called Leuven hypothesis on John. Van Bele traces the introduction of the historical critical method to our theology faculty back to the Old Testament scholar Albinus van Hunaker and his anti-counterpart Polan Ledoux, along with Alfred Kauchi, a church historian. Joseph Coppens and Lucien Serpaul continued this approach as they served on the editorial board of the newly founded Ephemerides Theologiae Lovanienses or ETL. In 1924, and as they initiated the annual Colloquium Biblical Lovaniensis, CBL, in 1949, just after World War II. Their students, Nering and Sabe, further applied this approach to the Gospel of John. In his articles about the early years of the faculty, Van Vele underlined that as dean, Nering strongly maintained that, I quote, the Louvain tradition demands serious scientific labor, critically analyzing the historical growth of Christian thought continuing to practice the critical method and introducing it to young theological students remains its most important task. Thus, we know Professor Neri, when it comes to the synoptic problem, the two-source theory, primacy of Mark, presence of Q, and later on to the Lubin hypothesis on the Gospel of John. That is, it upholds the unity of the gospel and favors the creativity of the evangelist. And apart from these three contributions, Nering could also be internationally connected with, again, CBL, ETL, and the series that we also now know as the BETL. His contributions to the faculty was so vital that his spec script later on was 2,668 pages. Let's go to the next. Christian Brechelmans. Christian Breckelmans is, um, is strengthened the tradition that Nering started, uh, that Nering started or championed, but he now in the field of the Old Testament. He is most known 
um, for working on the controversial Hebrew word and concept of harem, okay, um, meaning to say that would be um, the text involving genocide and total destruction of booties in military campaigns supposed to be ordained by God. So if you're interested on that, you have to look at the works of Professor Brechtelmans. He's also known on instituting criteria for designating texts as deuteronomistic. Later on, his students Mark Vervene, and later on the student of Mark Vervene, Professor Auslos, would also clarify and um, focus more on the criteria and classifications of what are these texts. Another thing that Professor Brechtelmans is very known for is his Dutch translation works of the Bible. And for these translation works, he was even named as Knight of the Dutch Lion in 1993. Let's go to the next, Professor Lambert. He was my neighbor in the old sauna or beehive type cubicles at the center of the second floor in our library. Do you still remember that? Yes. Um, he was the promoter of Professor Beeringer and the Dr. Groot's father of two of my mentors from the Philippines who sent me here. Sister Nisata Vargas, our Dean at the Institute of Formation and Religious Studies, and Father Victor Nikdao, my New Testament teacher who first taught me about historical critical method. Lambrecht would be known for three um, areas. One, of course, would be synoptics. He worked a lot on Mark, especially on um, the, let me check, the apocalyptic discourse in Mark 13. Very necessary right now. His reduction critical approach would also be applied on the parables and on the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Professor Lambrecht is also known for his work when it comes to the Pauline letters, especially Romans, Galatians, Thessalonians, and 2 Corinthians. For me, another important aspect of his being a scholar was his being part of the um, Papal Commission which worked on the inter interpretation of the Bible in the church in 1993. And one time over lunch, he told us the word behind the text of the IBC and he told us that he was the one who worked on rhetorical criticism. His students gave him a fat script, um, sharper than a two-edged words, and later on, another BATL series was devoted to celebrate his career, Resurrection in the New Testament. Right now, after his retirement, he is still as prolific as he is. And when I asked him, how can you do this, Professor? Oh, I have a lot of time. <laughs> I first heard of the name of the next dean that we have, Professor Delobel, from Sister Maria Anishako, another friend and mentor of ours in the Philippines, as he was her promoter. Professor Delobel served the faculty in various capacities as academic secretary, as vice dean, and also as dean. And his unique contributions could be also on three different fields. One would be the Lucan Gospel. He um, maintained the Lucan hypothesis, of course, but also rejected the existence of Proto-Luke in terms of Luke 7, 36 to 50. Another 
scholarly literature where Professor Delobel contributed to a better understanding of the early Christians who died in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Another aspect of his scholarship, again, would be his um, dedication to textual criticism. In 1974, he succeeded John Duplessis as text critic of the New Testament. Later on, um, he became also uh, president of a CBL um, and became a member of the Scientific Council of the Institution for New Testament Textual Criticism. His teaching visit in Münster in Germany um, resulted in his cooperation with Barbara Allen on a seminar on text criticism at the SBL held there in 1993, which was later published as New Testament Textual Criticism, Exegesis and Church History. In this homage to Kurt Allen, he contributed a section where he discussed the complementarity of textual criticism and exegesis as Siamese twins. The next one that we have as our dean was Professor Barbene. He was the rector of the Cayo Leuven when I first came here for my graduate studies. And it was so fascinating to learn from somebody, I couldn't remember now, that two of his students, my uh, then promoter, Professor Auslos, and Professor Lemele defended on the same day. Imagine husband and wife defending on the same day. <laughs> So Professor Berben is very well known when it comes to the uh, book of Exodus, but also on Pentateuch in general, um, textual criticism, synoptics, but also ancient Hebrew language and informatics. Berben underlines that a synchronic analysis of a text helps uncover the chronic issues within the text itself. And he has shown this in his different works on the C narrative, his dissertation, He's being a president of a CBL uh, focused on the Exodus, but also um, in his um, presidential address at the 15th EU South Congress in Cambridge. Responding to his students' dwindling knowledge of uh, Greek, he, with Professor Dino, also published a redacted synopsis by the Erste Drie Evangelien in 1986. It was printed and uh, had addenda and Corrienda. Uh, more importantly, uh, Berbeni also excelled in the study of the ancient Hebrew language and informatics, being among the first scholars who saw the potential of the new technology for the study of ancient languages. So as early as the 70s and early 80s, Berbeni cooperated on a scientific project between the Center, in Center Informatique Edible and Work Group Informatica. His dedication to this informatic research on the Bible was also marked by his participation in the international project on the semantics of ancient Hebrew database and in his service as president of the seventh conference of the Association Internationale uh, Bible et Informatique in 2004. So this ends the overview of the professors of the RUBS who serve as team. But let me just talk about two more representative professors from these silver years who were senior to Professor Berbeni. One from the Old, another from the New. Old Testament. I first heard, again, the name of Johann Dus from another mentor in the Philippines who introduced me to the question of the Son of Man and Messianism in the book of Daniel. Father Pablo David, now Bishop of Caloocan, one of the cities of Manila, our capital. His name can be equated with 
the book of Ezekiel in particular, and the Old Testament both in Hebrew and in Greek in general, and also by his being the founder of Kaye Lubin's Center for Septuagint Studies and Textual Criticism. This, uh, the monumental achievement of this center is on their being able to write and edit uh, what we now call asle. It's the Greek-English lexicon of the Septuagint, which he uh, published with professors Amical and Housepin. It was published in two installments in 1992 and in 1996, and it was revised in 2003. Other prestigious projects of the center are the Biblia de Alexandrie and the translation of the commentary on the Septuagint text of Ezekiel and its critical edition in the Biblia Hebraica Quinta or BHP. Apart from its numerous published articles, the center also supported the research of several doctoral projects, produced a number of test scripts, and organized expert symposia. When it comes to the New Testament, I want to introduce you to Professor Raymond Collins. If I remember rightly, it was in 2008 when I first met Professor Collins at the SBL in Atlanta. Some colleagues would tell me that at the SBL annual meetings, whenever he could, Collins would meet up with the Lubinars. After all, as Professor Delobel puts it, he was a citizen of two major Catholic universities in the world, the Kaye Leuven and the Catholic University of America. He would be known, again, for at least three things. One would be the Johannine Gospel, where we uh, writing two seminal articles on the presence of individuals as one of its stylistic features um, in 1976. It became the seed of the flourishing for narrative criticism of the Gospel of John. Another New Testament topic where Collins left his mark would be Pauline studies, especially in 1 Thessalonians. In terms of methods of biblical interpretation, for which he also worked a lot, he has this introduction to the New Testament, which was award-winning in the U.S. in 1983. Apart from the Bible, Professor Collins is also known for um, moral theology. He taught a lot of things about um, responding to ethical issues like heart transplant, abortion, human rights, etc., and also wrote significant um, contributions, books like Morality, Biblical Foundations, Divorce in the New Testament, and Wealth, Wages, and Wealthy. Now, even if I have grouped Professor Collins' works um, in terms of these areas, one other um, contribution that should be underlined is how Professor Collins um, transformed Louvain studies from a student publication to what is what, what it is now, uh, Scopus Index Academic Journal. In 1995, Levine Studies honored him with a double issue fed script entitled The Ministry of the Word. And somehow, it sums up the ministry and works of this great exhibit. Other luminaries of our department would be Luz de Caker, whose expertise was on Empire Studies in Daniel 2 and 7, Primeval Stories and Salvation History, and Jewish Christian Relations. We also have Anton Scholz, who is a known form critic of the Old Testament, including the Reed Pattern in Isaiah, and has written a lot on wisdom literature, especially Kohelet, 
and the ancient Near East. If I'm not mistaken, Johan, he is the first promoter of Professor Van Hecke. Um, William Boykin, whose focus was the final form and composition of Old Testament books, especially poetic texts, and also worked on the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, books of Deutero and to Isaiah, and book of Job. And later on, he also became a president of CBL in 1993 when they discussed the book of Job. Of course, Moritz Sade. His career spanned 36 years. He was most known for his Estudia Neotestamentica, which deals with Christology, Biblical Theology, John and the Synoptics. We also have Franz van Stegbroek, who worked together with Professor Nering on many projects, including Nering's collected essays and texts. Bansett Group also labored to spread the Bible in Flanders, being a writer or a member of the editorial board for many publications. So that's the first stage of our beginnings. Now, let's go to, by word of mouth, journey to the Golden Jubilee. I came to Leuven by plane, of course, but also by word of mouth. Of my twin sister, Malu, who studied New Testament, and of my mentors in the Philippines, as I told you. They were the faculty's ambassadors and messengers. I always remember that every proclamation day, Professor Lamberis would tell us, you are the ambassadors of the Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies. Now, we are trained, we have seen, we have felt, we have heard, very Johannine. Huh? Professor Van Velle ended his massive article on the silver years of the faculty with a note about Professor Gieringer, Professor Verhaden and himself. But I would like to group the three of them together with the current members of the research unit. Here, once again, I will just um, enumerate at least three contributions of each faculty. But I would like to dwell on two people that maybe some of us um, do not know anymore. So the first, I will um, talk about them canonically, meaning to say Old Testament, Qumran, New Testament, and Islamic studies. And not only that, alphabetically. Okay, so equal representation. So, Brian Doyle. I met Professor Brian Doyle first on a paper. He, I think he was the one who signed my acceptance um, letter here at the Cayo Bluebird. And when it comes to Professor Doyle, you would meet him usually when you are preparing for your master's thesis. I also did. Professor Doyle is also um, well known for his work on metaphors, especially on Isaiah. And um, I think, especially these days, he is known for um, introducing most, if not all, of the Kali Leuven students, master's students especially, on the contemporary approaches to biblical studies. His stu uh, student, Stephen Iguim, uh, from Nigeria, explored um, with him um, the Psalms in detail in his published dissertation on the topic that we have today, Psalm 109. My twin sister, Malu Ivita, was his collaborator in this class last year, and they made an exhibit on the contemporary approaches to biblical studies, the 70th anniversary of human rights, and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Some of you may have participated in that. The next professor that I will show you is somebody that I was really surprised. In our class with her, she has her guitar and she sang for us something about Jeremiah. That would be Professor Lamelin, our sole 
um, female professor at the RUBS and our current vice dean for international relations. And of course, the important role she plays in subsequent studies and textual criticism of the Hebrew Bible. Her dissertation on the textual and reduction criticism of the plague narr narrative was so steep okay, with the Lubin tradition of historical critical method. She studied under Professor Bervene, as I already said. So it's no wonder that a lot of her um, writings as editor or author concentrate on translation technique and textual criticism of the Septuagint. Um, since 2010, she's the director of the CSSTC, and under her leadership, the center continues to realize various components of their project on the Old Testament, including, again, several doctoral dissertations, expert symposia, and soon, a new book on the theology of the Septuagint. As much attention Professor Lemelin gives to the nitty-gritty of textual and reduction criticisms and the theology of the Septuagint, she has also endeavored to deepen the human quest for the meaning of life from biblical perspective in words that everyone can understand. And these books are oftentimes reprinted and translated in other languages. Last 2017, her book, Mengelof, as Bible Wetted Scopper, won the award Best Religious Book of the Year. The next one is, of course, my promoter. <laughs> I met him in an interdisciplinary class on the Akeda. I remember we uh, had to look at it from arts perspective, liturgy, patristics, etc., etc. And then, of course, later on, when I had to change promoter, since Professor Oslo's transferred to Leuven in 2010. Of course, he is most known for his works on Job, as well as cognitive linguistics, metaphors, and Hebrew poetry. And from his, um, as I told you, he finished uh, one doctorate in the year 2000 um, from Oriental Studies with Professor Scholes, and then another doctorate from Tilburg University um, on cognitive linguistics and metaphor uh, under the supervision of Ellen Van Walden. But from his um, 2003 article, um, which uh, forms part of the new approaches on the studies of Job, Professor Van Hecke also worked a lot on metaphor. So now he has already covered the Hebrew Bible, Psalms, Kohelet, Wisdom, and of course the just concluded Song of Songs. You can ask him later on if you're interested. Um, and then of course he's also the International Secretary General and later on President of the European Society for Catholic Theology. From 2011, he serves as the president of Old Testament Fish Work Scout in Belgium and the Netherlands. Now, for somebody that most of us, uh, or maybe the younger ones, do not know, one very significant development from the uh, for the research unit from its silver anniversary all the way to the golden years, golden years meaning say 50 years. Um, would be the inclusion of the Dead Sea Scrolls from our um, texts to be studied and from uh, the roster of our faculty. And we are very, very fortunate to have with us Professor Garcia Martinez and Professor Eber Tishera. So first, Professor Garcia Martinez. Very classic, Professor Garcia Martinez. When I came to Leuven as an international student, I was really fortunate to have him as my professor because he is the epitome of being an international person. Imagine, 
born in Spain, formed in Rome in Israel, husband to a French wife, father to Netherlands-born children, and teacher to people from all over the world. When I met him, he was a full-time research professor at the faculty. He just came from Groningen, and it was Professor um, Van der Waude, the founder of Groningen Comran Institute, who um, invited him there. Um, Van der Waude would be also the uh, founder of the Journal for the Study of Judaism. And with him, uh, Professor Garcia Martinez developed the Groningen Hypothesis. The Groningen Hypothesis clearly distinguishes between the manuscripts that have all, um, between uh, the origins between the Essenes and the Qumran group. And even if the manuscripts have already been published and there are new analyses um, right now, the core of the Groningen hypothesis has not been proven wrong. Um, Professor Garcia Martinez's involvement with Qumran studies also include working on two more major journals, the Journal for, of the Study of Judaism and the Review de Qumran. And at one special congress in 1989, he founded, with the other speakers, the International Organization for Qumran Studies. He has published scrolls um, with an international team of editors, uh, scrolls, scrolls from Cape 11, and later on, he has also received several awards. He was appointed as foreign member of the Humanities and Social Sciences Division at the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences. And because of the impact of his studies, he was also named a knight in the order of the Dutch lion in 2008. From Groningen, he was um, given a flat script, Flores Florentino, and then of course, from our side, we have Florilegium Lubaniense. An alumnus, Jan Overmeer, okay, in Groningen, founded the Florentino Garcia Martinez Research Master Scholarship for students who want to pursue graduate studies on the Hebrew Bible, early Judaism, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Of course, we also have Professor Tishila that you know. So I will not be saying a lot of things, except that when he defended his doctorate in 1994, by 1998 he was already included in those who published the Dead Sea Scrolls Cave 11. Um, and then, later on, with Professor Garcia Martinez, they uh, published a two-volume study edition of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, his interests are on one Enoch, um, the wisdom texts of the Qumran scrolls, and also the editor-in-chief of the Journal for the Study of Judaism. And from 2004, he served as the secretary of the International Organization for Qumran Studies, IOQS, that I already talked about. Now, let's go to the New Testament. You have here Professor Biedmer, can I just enumerate three? <laughs> Okay, so his doctoral dissertation on 2 Corinthians was um, under Professor Lambert, and he is known, of course, for his works on the Pollen text, his works on the Johannine text, and also on hermeneutics. In both the Pollen text and the Johannine text, he also tried to look at it from many perspectives, employing several uh, methods in interpreting the text, but also on their impact on Jewish-Christian dialogue. In terms of ethics and hermeneutics, he has worked with another Luvenar um, from Loyola University in Chicago, 
Um, her name is Mary Ellsburn, and with her, they co-authored the book When Love Is Not Enough, which also won an award from the Catholic Press Association. Later on, um, Professor Ellsburn and Professor Giddinger also worked with some of their students on a hermeneutics that, uh, called normativity of the future. This approach allows the dialogue between the Bible and the science of the times as constitutive of God's revelation. And it's elaborated, of course, in their book of the same title, Normativity of the Future. Here at the faculty, he has served as vice dean for research uh, from 2008 to 2012 and was the co-founder of the Center for Women's Studies Theology. He chairs the research group Exegesis, Hermeneutics, and Theology of the Corpus Paulinum and Corpus Johanneum. From 2011 onwards, he has served as secretary of the CBL, and he has also led the European Association of Biblical Studies, EABS, as, as its president from 2012 to 2015. He was also president of the Colloquium Ecumenicum Paulinum in 2010, and has been its permanent secretary since 2014. From 2005, he was the president of he is the president of the Flemish Bible Society. Now let's look at another person that I also just encountered right now. That would be Professor Adalbert Denot. He's another distinguished member of the research unit, and he did his dissertation with Professor Neyring on Luke and the Few Source. He became Neyring's direct successor and further strengthened the Leuven School. But Professor um, Denot was not only known for his works on the synoptics, he's also very well known, he excelled in ecclesiology and ecumenism. In fact, he has been the president of the National Catholic Commission for Ecumenism from 1987 to 2007 and chaired the International Ecumenical Fellowship in the Leuven meeting in 1996. He has also been a long member of what uh, is called RSIC, or the Anglican Catholic, um, Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission. He became um, the president and rector of the Bruges Seminary, later on also of Lady the Thirteenth, and now, until now, he is our editor of the magazine Colaciones, our faculty's journal in Dutch, which makes our theological research accessible to a wider audience. Next, I need to drink. <laughs> because the next one is really also fascinating in his contribution. And I didn't know this. I only knew this when I was actually researching on this topic. Who would it be? Professor Bandele. The Gospels, especially John and Christology, are the research topics closest to the heart of Professor Gilbert Bandele. In fact, his first script was actually uh, also bears that same title. His career here spans 40 years and counting because he's not only emeritus, he is emeritus with assignment, meaning to say he continues his research and teaching without the meetings. Nice. <laughs> Under the guidance of Nering, of course, he became a staunch defender of the Leuven um, hypothesis on John and also. Um, on the Synoptic Gospels and Q. His dissertation was also awarded a prize. Um, Jake Coppens of the Belgian Royal Academy of Sciences and Arts, a prize that he again got in 1992 for his study, The Sign Source in the Fourth Gospel, published in 94. 
in terms of Christology, Banvelo widened his Johannine research to the death of Jesus, a topic he focused on at the CBL of 2005 and another conference in 2006. For him, especially for the Johannine scholars here, the sign for excellence in the fourth gospel is the sign of the cross. Now, what are the other things that Professor Banvelo did? Of course, he's very uh, much um, involved with the ETL, the BETL, but also without computers. Can you imagine? He was the one who painstakingly classified the bibliographical complement to the journal, the Elencus Bibliographicus, and recorded the faculty events in the Chronica of ETL. So for me, no wonder, another legacy of Professor Van Bailey for us is his being a walking chronicle of the faculty and the RUBS. We owe Professor Van Bailey most of the things that we can remember about the department because his 90, almost more than 90 page um, materials, the, uh, data analysis of what happened in the first 25 years is um, you can find in the book uh, God Gelerheit, published in 1995. And it's the same thing when it comes to his um, newer articles on Johannine scholarship. Um, another, of course, that you all know would be Professor Verhaden. He's another close collaborator of Nering and um, defended his um, dissertation with him on the Fluke van de Christenen Narpelia in 1987. Um, the interest of Verhaden would uh, fall on Synoptic and Acts, New Testament and its reception, and Hellenism, including apocryphal literature. But for me, the gift that he uh, most uh, gives to the department and to uh, biblical studies would be his administrative gifts and also his editorial skills. He has been uh, either he would edit, co-edit, um, fetch scripten, um, conference proceedings, and several international journals. He has also been the secretary of the CBL for 10, 11 years, and he made a survey of CBL 1 to 60 in 2011. Um, of course, his um, interest is on the unity of Luke Acts, and he was the president of CBL in 1998. Let me just maybe enumerate some of the journals that you are familiar with. For example, Review of Biblical Literature of the SBL, Journal of Eastern Christian Studies, Sacra Scripta, Revista Biblica, Berlina Theologische Zeitschrift, Novum Testamentum Patristicum, Documenta Q, Commentaries or Apocryphal Literature, and Adnotaciones. So these are even monograph series. And of course, we have the international journals like New Testament Studies, Novum Testamentum, and Supplements to the Novum Testamentum. Both of them, uh, Verheiden and Van Vele, are members of the Leuven Center for the Study of the Gospels, and um, they hosted the annual Franz Nehring Lecture in 2014. The last one that I will show you would be um, Professor Mehdi Asayis. And this is all, also something that I miss in my studies here at Cayo Leuven, that now we are really a faculty of theology and religious studies because Professor Mehdi Asayis is, is a Qumran scholar. And one of the important contributions uh, of this young man is uh, being a member of a Mellow Foundation Sawyer Seminary Grant, 
which allowed him and his colleague to conduct the Quran seminar project at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, which culminated in a 500-plus page Quran commentary in 2016. So, I don't want to burden us with much more. What would be the trajectory that I would see? First, um, I would have maybe three um, notes here. The first thing is, we're coming from two world wars, Vatican II and the division of the university into two. That was chaos. But now, we also face other chaos, which for Fernando Segovia in his 2015 lecture is characterized by um, three things. He calls it post-it pa passion. It's not the post-it that we use in our research. Post, number one, post, um, Post-global politics, because of the failure of globalization resulting in widespread exclusion and disenfranchisement. Number two, post-human, because of climate change with major crisis predicted as soon as 2040, although I must tell you, we already suffer it. And three, post-national, from the viewpoint of world migration. And to these three, I will add another one. Okay? He calls this the global systemic approach, but two, the post-global politics, post-human, and post-national, I will add post-truth. We all know uh, what that means. With this, um, he says that because it's a whole system that we need to individually and as a community face, we also need to be systemic in our approach. This is the world where our um, masters, international students come from now, and also our alumni go home to. What does it entail for us? Professor Banbele um, said in his tradition, um, exegetical formation, and Leuven, formation and, and Leuven hypothesis, he said this, at Kali Leuven, okay, we are formed. Okay? The scientific study of the significance of ancient texts employs the historical critical method as its primary and most essential tool. This methodological approach allows us to establish a contextualized picture of the significance of what the authors and redactors of the Bible had in mind when they wrote. As a research method or approach, historical critical analysis includes several different stages. Reconstruction of the original text, linguistic and semantic analysis, study of the structure of the text and its various component textual units, reconstruction of the sources employed, study of the genre, research into the transmission and reduction of the text. In this slide, it's essential that any explanation of the text historical situation be coordinated with reading the text. Measuring one's reading against other methods rooted in tradition, like canonical interpretation, Jewish interpretive traditions, study of the influence of the text, etc. And comparing one's conclusions to approaches based primarily in the human sciences, sociological, cultural, anthropological, psychological, and psychoanalytical analysis, as well as the so-called contextual approaches, liberation theologies, and feminist readings. He just summed up the interpretation of the Bible in the church. And how do we do um, exegesis here in Leuven? So with this background and with Segovia's um, 
overall um, global systemic approach, I would like to characterize probably the approaches or methods that we need to have um, in biblical studies. What would it be? Number one, contextual, meaning to say we know the context uh, of our text, we know the context of its literature, and we also know our context. We already know that from uh, Paul Ricoeur. Here at the faculty, I would like to also acknowledge the uh, one of the courses that allow us to visit the biblical lands, because for the international students, it's not always easy. Either we don't have the, the time, we live so far away, or we don't have the resources to visit these places. It makes us understand more what we are dealing with, but at the same time, grapple with it from our own context. Another would be integrated. What do we mean by integrated? That it should be interdisciplinary. Knowing also the theological and pastoral reflections needed in today's world. It also means that it should be multi-intelligence, as David Kleins would, uh, would say. We need to um, give our students, we need to allow them to learn the methods so that when they go to their own context, they would know how to interpret the text. Living in an archipelago, I always liken it to being, you know, children learning how to swim. At first, you use the uh, boy or the salvavida, but you cannot always do that. You cannot always have the library of the Moritzabe Bibliothek. You have to know how to swim. So whether it is for pleasure or for survival, you know what to do. Next would be inclusive. Inclusive meaning to say inclusive of women, inclusive of differently abled persons, inclusive of the LGBTQIA, it's not a new alphabet. It means lesbian, gay, queer, exegesis, etc., etc. And I would just like to also point out here that there's an interesting new artwork at the faculty, and it was Bernard de Frey who made me aware of that because you wrote me about it and you took a picture. It's called Upward Stream. For those who do not know it, when you are coming from MTC, going to the library, there's this weird circle. It's not weird. It's actually the name of all the women who have graduated from the faculty with doctoral degrees, coming from different places, whether it is first world or third world, south or north. So here we have a faculty that is really highly, becoming highly inclusive and becoming highly internationalized. Another um, concern that we have when it comes to being inclusive would be access to knowledge because knowledge is power and when you have access to knowledge, it empowers you. I would like to comment here, for example, the efforts of the International Cooperation Initiative of the SBN, wherein if you're a member, you cannot do it here, but I can do it in the Philippines. I can download books, PDF forms, okay, with my membership, with my annual membership. And not only that, right now we are also given uh, the chance to access JSTOR journals so it's a big help especially 
at least from the Philippines, we have a lot of access for the internet. But can you imagine in some other places where our alumni do not actually have those kinds of resources? Finally, transformational. This process means being responsive to the call of the spirit and the signs of the times. It asks us the question of how our scholarship, the questions that we pose, are conditioned by our social education and how they serve political functions. And I am glad to know that, again, as I said, we now also have in the faculty a course on contemporary hermeneutics. But we have to be reminded that the student has to be steeped in historical critical method so that they are more equipped to venture to these new approaches such as trauma hermeneutics. If I'm not mistaken, um, who was doing it? Danilo. Yeah, Danilo. Um, also ecological hermeneutics, that's the one that I did. But there's also this new thing that's coming up. It's called political exegesis. I was really intrigued by political exegesis. And um, it's something that is also going on at the SBL. They have three sessions at the International SBL in Rome, in writings, in contextual hermeneutics, and also political exegesis uh, by Jeremy Punt and uh, Fernando Segovia. But it's also very interesting that we also have, even in popular culture and the Bible, at the um, annual meeting um, this November in San Diego. Okay. Psalm 109 is full of imprecations. And when I was preparing, um, this is actually like an ongoing research for me. And I noticed, and I was also quite glad, that one of the main books on this uh, comes from an alum, uh, alumnus, a student of Professor Doyle from um, Nigeria, Stephen Iguim. I'm glad that Stephen Iguim already dealt with the historical critical questions that it is a Psalm of David, that even if it's a Psalm of David, we actually don't know if he's the author, that it could, um, because of the reference to David, it could have been written uh, before the exile, but because of the reference to the throne or the multitude, maybe it was also written um, during the first or second temple period, so we don't really know. It's a very interesting Psalm, and hopefully, Maybe you can see it. The sound is so long, it was difficult for me to put even a, a text. So I just took a photo of a Bible that actually would have all the text here. So if you have good eyes, maybe you can see it. But I would like to divide it into three. We are talking about mouths here. The first would be that psalmist is praying to God. Do not be silent, O God. O God whom I praise, be not silent. And then we have the even mouths. For they have opened wicked and treacherous mouths against me. They have spoken to me with lying tongues, and with words of hatred they have encompassed me and attacked me without cause. In return for my love they slandered me, but I pray. They repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. For Gastonberger, this psalm is a complaint psalm. Because complaints always try to change a situation of injustice and misery for the better. It talks about mouth. And mouth as an organ of communication is powerful. For Garcia Lopez, in his TDOT entry, he said, The human mouth is not neutral. On the contrary, it's a mighty weapon. Its speech entails serious consequences, good or evil. And this is true not just for the individual but also for society. 
The mouth of the righteous is a source of light and blessing. Their speech brings prosperity. Fools produce violence and practice it with their mouths. Their speech destroys them and those around them. The human mouth can foster or destroy solidarity and fellowship with one's neighbors. The speech of the wicked engenders intrigues and slanders their neighbors. And such a speech becomes a destructive force within society. Contrarywise, the blessings uttered by the righteous serve the prosperity and well-being of the city. Their speech is good and constructive because they are concerned for the welfare of their neighbors. The words of the wicked can even be deadly snares. Those who are guilty attempt to pervert justice with their words. They condemn innocent to death. Those who are innocent can defend and deliver themselves by speaking the truth. Careful attention to one's speech is therefore a matter of life and death. The fruits of the mouth are either beneficent or deadly. Those who guard their mouths refuse to spread poison and take care not to injure others. In all the passages that he mentioned here, they underline the gravity and effectiveness of human language, the potency of the mouth. It is therefore easy to understand the psalmist who uses the language of wisdom to emphasize the dangers that emanate from a wicked mouth and a lying tongue. And, faced with such peril, praise for God's speedy intervention and deliverance, just like what we have in Psalm 109. All over the world, <clears throat> we have examples of leaders who are careless with their speech. Their mouths, verbally or by social media like Twitter, utter vicious words and post truths or alternative facts. And this reality has become a daily occurrence for all of us. And it's devastating and eroding the fundamental values that democracy all over the world hold dear. The psalm is very long, as you can see on the screen. But the psalm calls for a God not to be silent. And amid the viciousness of the uttered hateful words which surround the psalmist and the unprovoked attack, I like this idea of praying to a God who is not silent an unsilent God. Same thing with Psalm 28.1 and Psalm 35.22. For Walter Brueggemann, he explains that if you are a covenant partner of God, you should speak. You should voice out and demand from God accountability for the shared covenants. When we are only saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, even if things are already a mess, then we lose our voice. We lose our capacity to cry out. The crying out, the sa'ak, that started the story of the salvation when God heard the enslaved Israelites in Exodus. Here we acknowledge that somebody more powerful than us is in charge of the world, that we are party to a covenant with this God, and that when things are amiss in our personal and collective world, and we suppose that we have done our part, we are confident that we can complain to God and seek out the just God who will avenge us. In Psalm 50, this God speaks and testifies against the wicked whose mouth has free reign for evil and with tongue of deceit. Now, the imprecations here are very harsh. If you can see this red um, <coughs> um, groups, you know, the text that has this red uh, symbol, it's really horrible. It's so vicious. They are harsh. But the backdrop is a court called setting, for there is a mention of a judge, of an accuser, and of condemnation. The plea is for the singled out enemy, maybe the leader, to be banished from the community and communal memory, from the society where his family lives, from the social economic status the enemy holds, and the memory that the enemy occupies in the generations before and after him. But why such rage? 
Verse 16, 16 explains it. Because this enemy remembered not to show hesed, but persecuted the wretched and the poor and the brokenhearted to their death. The absence of hesed is not only by deed, but also by word, not just by omission, but by commission. The retribution is according to what the enemy did and did not do or utter. It says, uh, verses 17 to 20, He loved cursing, may it come upon him. He took no delight in blessing, may it be far from him. And may he be clothed with cursing as with a robe. May it penetrate into his entrails like water and like oil into his bones. May it be for him like garment which covers him, like a girdle which is always about him. May this be the recompense from the Lord upon my accusers and upon those who speak evil against me. Now, let's go to the third part. God's hesed, petition and hope of a thankful mouth. This is the big but. This is where we actually have the <clears throat> change um, in the psalm. The petition of the psalmist up till now, okay, he seems anonymous or she is anonymous. But now he identifies with one of those wretched and poor whose heart is pierced within, within him or her. It says, But do you, O God, my Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake. In your generous kindness rescue me, for I am wretched and poor and my heart is pierced within me. Like a lengthening shadow, I pass away. I am swept away like the locust. My knees totter from fasting, and my flesh is wasted, wasted of its substance. And I have become a mockery to them. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord, my God. Save me in your kindness. Make them know this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done this. Let them curse. But do you bless. May my adversaries be put to shame, but your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with disgrace. And let them wear their shame like a mantle. I will speak my thanks earnestly to the Lord. And in the midst of the throne, I will praise him. For he stood at the right hand of the poor man to save him from those who would condemn him. What's the basis for being thankful? The basis is covenant, the covenantal hesed of the Lord and the order of God's name. Covenantal hesed is not about emotional love. It is something that is commanded, especially in Deuteronomy. The reference for your namesake touches on the so-called biblical social values of patronage and honor and shame. The Lord is the patron who should be honored. Anything that happens to those under his care is an affront to his honor, and therefore, the enemy is actually shaming the Lord, and therefore, a speedy plea is a must. As a whole, the psalm is indeed very harsh, raw in its rage, which may explain its non-appearance on the breviary and the accusation that ah, it's so unchristian. But is this really the case? Of course, the Old Testament scholars, especially the experts of the Psalms, would not agree for this kind of censorship. If we live a well-organized and safe life, one filled with shalom, Psalm 109 may be scandalous. Walter Brueggemann challenges that when we encounter a disconcerting Psalm like this one, we need to ask, Whose psalm is this? If I'm not able to pray that way today, can I ask who needs to pray that way? Who is justified in praying that way today? Could it be one of the refugees coming from South America or the east of Europe? Could it be a journalist persecuted by his or her own government with threats of legal cases or death? Could it be families displaced by war, not of their own making? Or a woman raped as a consequence of war? who was relying on international efforts to criminalize it, 
but then it has been vetoed? Or maybe a young girl who was forced by a police to have sex with him in exchange of the freedom of her parents who were taken to custody because of suspicion that they are drug dealers? Or a student bullied in school and in social media thinking of taking his or her own life? Or maybe a parish priest or an imam trying to literally piece together the remains of his congregation after their worship place was bombed. This last example made me think of this young and godly spiritual leader that I met maybe two months ago, who in the depths of his grief and prayer and anger, with clenched fists, greeted teeth, and watery eyes, prayed that if ever the perpetrators will be found, please God, give me one of them. Because he was literally trying to piece whose arm is this, whose leg is this. That vital. Or maybe it could also be compared to a prophetic oracle, what Bishop Pablo David, who, as I said, trained on Messianism here in Leuven uh, with Professor Luz, proclaimed in his homily at the San Roque Cathedral on August 17, 2018. They were opening, marking a, a sign for a kid, a young teenager, 17 years old, whose name is Kian de los Santos. He was killed in a drug raid and he was pleading um, to the police, please don't kill me, I have an exam tomorrow. But still they pulled the trigger. Here we have at least some of those who have died in young ones, teenagers, students who have died in this drug war. And the prophetic oracle, which I will quote in parts, runs like this. It was his uh, Bishop David's homily. If the prophet Amos or Ezekiel were to prophesy in the Philippines today, this is what he would say. The word of the Lord came to me thus, Son of man, I appointed you as watchman for my people. Proclaim this oracle from the housetops. Woe to you who call drug addicts and humans deserving of death, who gave you the right to pass judgment on people who are sick. You claim to care about the future of young people in this country? What future awaits them if they end up dead on a street alley after a legitimate police operation? Woe to you who drive the poor victims of drugs more deeply into poverty and misery. You trample on people's dignity because they're poor and are unable to defend themselves. Woe to you who order law enforcers to murder when their mandate is to protect the citizens and defend their right to a safe and secure environment. Woe to you who blindly follow unjust and unlawful orders. Woe to you who call yourselves Christians but do not care an iota about the victims of extrajudicial killings or even about priests who are being murdered. You who can still afford to laugh even when your faith is trampled upon and your God is called stupid, you blind fools. You come to church and hear the word of God you line up for communion to receive the Lamb of God who died for sinners, but you tolerate the murder of those whom he died for. Woe to you who call yourselves shepherds but allow yourselves to be, your sheep to be slaughtered. Because your crimes have reached the highest heavens and the cries of the very families of victims have been heard on the throne of mercy, because you have been weighed and have been found wanting, therefore your names will be written on the walls of the deepest recesses of the underworld. You will stumble on the very swords you have used as weapons to bully the poor with. Your guilt will be borne by your children and your children's children down to the fourth generation. He calls it prophetic oracle, but I feel that the sentiment 
against the perpetrators are like the song, the psalmist. Psalm 109 has been considered an anti-curse song, a person to deity speech, a psalm concerned for social solidarity. And when it comes to in all this exegetical treatment, it's clear that Lee Cormy is correct. Hermeneutics is a privilege of the oppressed. For him, the Spirit of God speaks more clearly through the lowly, more than ever. We are confronted with the fundamental question of who reads the Bible today, of whose voices are heard in articulating the meaning of the text. This question has posed another series of fundamental challenges to the institutionalization of exegesis, even to every discipline and to the organization of the university as a whole. In this age of post-it, post-global economics, post-human, post-national, and post-truth, recognizing where we are as interpreters, whose voice we'll listen to, and who benefits from our research and interpretation is important. Once again, Corby's words spoken almost 30 years ago still rings true. In this concrete historical process, choices are inevitable. And in the context of hierarchically organized social order, now generally global in many respects, choosing sides for or against the poor and oppressed, and for or against the earth itself is also inevitable. In making such choices, the forms of faith and hope that inspire us are revealed, and so are the gods we worship. The deepest challenge then to every reading of the Bible and of the God revealed there concerns its capacity to inspire concrete action in solidarity with all the oppressed, including the earth, and the redefinition of our identities and our communities. As I said in the beginning, Ang hindi marunong lumingon sa pinanggalingan, hindi makakarating sa paroroonan. Those who don't know how to look back will not reach their destination. We have looked back at the 50 years of the RUBS, and now we imagine what is yet to come. Preparing for this paper allowed me to have a better grasp of who we are as a faculty and as a research unit. Sometimes it feels like reading a toledot. It is interesting to learn who we got whom academically. Sometimes it feels like going through family albums, reminiscing, peoples, and events that influence who we are today as individuals and as a community of exegesis. Before I left Leuven, I had a favorite tree at the Abbey of Kaisersdorf, shedding back onto the statue of Mary that overlooks Leuven. The roots of the research unit's family tree is in Leuven's holy grounds. The call for us is to grow tall and thick so we can see what's beyond us and hear the groaning of creation and those who are oppressed, but also deep because we know who we are and we can stand our grounds in terms of the implications of our learning, research, and teaching the Holy Scripture, be it the Bible or the Quran. The call is to be firm in confronting and dealing with evil mouths of post-truth, tender in our solidarity with those denied hesed, victims who are post-global, post-human, and post-national and with thankful mouths to the hope of the hesed that comes from the Lord and the hesed that we are called to be. This is the research unit biblical studies of the Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies of the Catholic University of Tuvan. This is our tradition and formation, our nahala, our inheritance. Thank you very much. Thank you.